Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Kathy Marsh, Assistant General Counsel for Non-Sovereign Operations at the Asian Development Bank, along with my two partners, James Murray and James Orm, of Millbank's Project Energy and Infrastructure Finance Group, based in Singapore. Technology develops at exponential rates now. Who'd have thought that I'd be able to do my banking from this tiny little thing held in my hand? Let's get to it. Energy transition is an overused phrase. By it, people typically mean the shift away from hydrocarbons, like coal, oil, and natural gas, toward greener sources of energy, like wind, solar power, and cleaner fuels for heating, transportation, and industrial processes. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change. In the Asia-Pacific region, there is no clear consensus on the shape of the energy transition. Unlike Europe and North America, Asia is experiencing substantial population growth and massive development. Energy use per capita is rising fast, along with the rise in GDP and the build-out of cities and industries and the critical infrastructure that sustains them. Which begs the question, are climate goals and economic development on a collision course? It is a huge challenge to make development both rapid and sustainable. And there is no path to meaningful reductions in global greenhouse gas emissions that does not lead through Asian nations. Asia and the Pacific account for 60% of the world's population and 75% of global CO2 emissions. Both numbers are projected to rise for decades, even with huge investments in renewable energy and net-zero political aspirations. China alone has more than half the world's total capacity of coal-fired power plants and puts out more CO2 in a year than all other developed nations combined. China also ranks first in installed solar power capacity and is the leading developer of new nuclear power plants and offshore wind. India relies heavily on coal, but is making huge investments in wind and solar power. East Asia and the Pacific account for about 40% of global hydropower capacity. The role of natural gas and LNG around the world is very much in flux, as we'll discuss more in a moment, with decisions in Asia dictating the future for the planet. In the U.S. and Europe, where liquidity is ample and growth rates are slower, demand for new energy investment is driven by the shift in power generation away from coal to renewables and the trends toward digitalization of the economy and electrification of the transportation sector. In Asia, other factors matter more. Per capita energy use, low today across Asia, will rise steeply compared to more developed markets. Long-term economic growth, industrialization, trade, and an expanding middle class all drive growth in the demand for energy. The opportunities to invest in new energy assets, whether sustainable or not, are plentiful and vary widely. Coal, gas, hydropower, biomass, wind, solar, all play a role. Innovative technologies like battery storage and green hydrogen are exciting for the future, but Asia is scaling up its energy sector now, with possibly devastating climate impacts for at least the next century. In the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow this month, I sat down with my partners James Murray and James Orm in Singapore 
and our former partner Kathy Marsh, now at the ADB in Manila, to look at the energy transition in Asia and the Pacific. So James Murray, James Orm, Kathy Marsh, it's a real pleasure being with all of you today. It's great to be here, Alan. Good to be here, Alan. Hey, Alan. Great to see you. So, Kathy, I'd like to start with you. What's your role at the ADB now? I'm an assistant general counsel. My team covers everything private sector that ADB does. Having said that, Alan, I'm not here today as ADB. I'm here in my personal capacity to chat amongst all of us. Good. Well, we appreciate your expertise. The energy picture in Asia is complicated. I mean, for one thing, we're talking about the most populous part of the world, wide range of countries. And in your role with the Asian Development Bank, that means you've got a, a lot of variable situations to deal with in the context of you know a greater policy of development and care for populations and the environment and the economies of, of the various countries. How does climate change impact the, the future of energy, both use and generation in the region? Great question, Alan. And yes, you're right. Asia is you know, a really complicated, wide-ranging area. And Asian Development Bank, you know, we cover not just Asia, but also the Pacific and you know, particularly the Pacific Islands. We actually did a little calculation ahead of this recording to work out how many jurisdictions are covered in the same landmass here as are covered by the landmass of the United States. And it comes out at 34 jurisdictions, right, compared to one. So that's quite something. That feeds into the complexity of how to look at and think about climate change in the wider regional context as well as the global context. You know, we're dealing across a mass of jurisdictions with a mass of different challenges, different geographies, different resources, and so on. You know, there's a lot of coal deposits in Asia. You know, Indonesia is a major coal producer. We have coal, obviously, in Mongolia and China also, as well, you know, Vietnam, all, all around the region, there's coal. And so one has to think about you know, the natural resources available in different jurisdictions and set that against you know, matters such as you know, the particular geographies, right? The Philippines, where I'm sitting right now, that's seven and a half thousand islands. Indonesia is 30 plus thousand islands. Those are very individual challenges faced you know, by countries in the region that you know, we all cover sitting on you know, this podcast with you. So I think that that's just sort of going to say that there is no one size fits all approach. And one can't approach this thinking that there is a one size fits all approach. There will always be complexities and competing agendas and competing interests when looking at this. You know, having said that, one thing that Asia is blessed with, at least you know, South and Southeast Asia, and indeed the Pacific Islands, we have buckets of sunshine. Not this morning, it's pouring with rain here this morning in Manila, but most of the time we have buckets of sunshine there is a lot of coastline for you know, offshore wind around Asia. Vietnam, I think, you know, has the longest coastline in the region. Renewables are playing an ever-increasing role in the energy mix you know, across our region here. 
I want to stay, though, with this uh, this diversity of generation mix and, and really talk about coal for a moment and really focus on China, because what we've seen in this last uh, few weeks is this incredible pressure on many ch uh, Chinese energy developers because demand is up. You know, global supply chains are demanding more and more production out of China. Uh, Seventy percent of China's electricity goes to industrial and commercial activities, and a lot of those are reliant on coal. Now the coal demand goes up, prices come up, and the ability of those utilities to recover from their rate base, which has you know price protections, is limited. So we've seen curtailments of power, and we've seen blackouts uh, and, and power crises in China. We've seen similar problems play out in other markets, uh, from you know, India to Texas, around the world, for in different fuels and in different situations. But this regulatory design and market design regardless of whether state-owned or privately-owned economies, can pose a real challenge. James Murray, if you look at the role of coal in the region, do you see that diminishing or do you see that continuing to grow even while other sources like renewables are, are being you know, the source of significant investment? A good question, Alan. If you'd asked me that question a number of years ago, I, I think I would have been a little more pessimistic about the outlook for coal because, you know, for those of us who've been working in, in Asia, well, in my case, for decades, I think we've just seen how critical coal has been in the, in the overall you know, energy mix. You know, it continues to be, and my understanding is, you know, 75% of global production and consum consumption of coal is still out of Asia. And when you look at the existing baseload capacity around the region, coal-fired IPPs are a very significant part of that. And that will continue for some time because much of that generation capacity is, is relatively recent and, you know, and still has you know, time to run. But there's been a really significant shift. The, you, know, you mentioned China, Alan. You know, there we see right from the, from the top of government a very concerted effort to see meaningful change in the way coal is used and pushing participants in the energy sector to use other types of, of, of other energy sources. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative has been paused and we're expecting a new version of that you know, to come out with sort of greater focus on, on, on green power. So there is change. And, and I think what we're seeing, those of us who are practitioners out here working on many different power and energy projects, as we look to the new capacity that's now being added, where new investment dollars are going, there's been a really substantial shift towards different types of renewables. And, and I think that's very exciting. And James, I mean, to put a point on that, President Xi Jinping just announced that coal will no China will no longer be financing coal-fired power plants overseas outside of China anymore. You, you know, you look at the types of institutions that are financing coal anymore, you know, the Japanese, the Korean and the Chinese ECAs, they were some of the largest financiers of coal-fired projects. And that, that just isn't the case anymore. Kathy, if you look at renewables and the role that they're playing, what's the biggest driver there? Is it the fact that they've come down so much in cost? Is it public policy and incentives from governments? Is it investor interest? What's, what's really driving the, the boom in renewables across Asia? I think it is all of those factors in combination. I agree. I, I think I read something the other day, rapid population growth, strong economic growth, and just a popular desire to decarbonize. It, it makes the renewable story really compelling. So now let's look at gas, because in many parts of the world, natural gas is considered part of the problem. In a region dominated historically by coal production, with heavy reliance on gas, gas may be an important part of the transition to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, or at least reducing the growth in them. 
And LNG demand continues to rise in Asia at the same time as supply is starting to be tapped out. So there's a shift of diversion of LNG potentially over the long term from the Atlantic Basin into the Pacific markets. James Orm, you've been dealing quite a bit with LNG projects. Do you see them as part of the problem or part of the solution in this area? For, for sure, part of the solution for the time being. I think to touch on a couple of points you just mentioned, Shell and Wood Mackenzie recently came out re- with reports saying that they expected LNG demands to, to double by, by 2040. You look at LNG spot prices in, in Asia at the moment, they've just, they've just set a new record at $34 per MMBTU. So the demand for LNG is, is really soaring. So you've you mentioned that spot prices are going up. I think it's true in the near to the you know the, the near maybe in the medium term we are seeing this increase in LNG prices. But long term, if you look at the forward price curve and some of the reports you mentioned, there is this idea that at some point, as new supply from Qatar and from Russia come in and contracts, long term contracts roll off and need to be renewed, that there will in fact be significant price drops in LNG. So how do you bridge if you're an investor? Looking at that, how do you bridge that difference between short-term price spikes and shortages and long-term glut and perhaps you know low forward price forecasts? The market is just becoming more mature. I think I mean LNG SPAs, the the the, the tenor of those types of agreements, they they become much shorter term now. And I think you know there's a there's a there's a greater comfort level with people being willing to. To, to, to trade LNG and, and, and really look to the spot market. And, and by virtue of that liquidity that, and that maturity in the market, I, I think naturally prices will just will, will spike. I think there's more capacity coming online. I mean, you, you look at, you know, you look at Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Vietnam, Bangladesh, there's lots and lots of stories of, of LNG, you know, gas to power or import liquefaction plants being discussed. Um, so I, I think certainly in the in the short to medium term, I, I think the uh, LNG is certainly going to be a, a bridge for the net carbon zero transition. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. You, you know, again, not all countries are the same. There's a wide range. And some of the most vulnerable nations are those in the Pacific. They also have some very innovative programs to deal with challenges. And of course, for a lot of them, imported fossil fuels are very expensive. And renewables are, in fact, a way to reduce their costs while also re, you know, increasing the reliability of their own grid, contributing to global sustainability and becoming more resilient themselves. Kathy, what is the uh, ADB doing in the, for some of the Pacific nations to reinforce some of those, those positive trends? So, yes, the Pacific Island nations have you know, very particular challenges. They have low population. They're obviously remote geographically and all sorts of challenges that come along with that. And various of them have very low populations as well. So ADB has many Pacific Island, what we call DMCs, developing member countries. The smallest one by area covers something like 20 square kilometers, and the smallest by population is just over 200,000 population. So these are very small nations that we're talking about. And the approaches in jurisdictions such as that, it become very different. And I think that, you know, one development that, you know, we're seeing at the moment is microgrids with battery storage off the back of them, for example, because, you know, again, if you look at the map, a lot of these small Pacific Island nations, 
they're not just you know one large landmass. There are some who you know which are larger, obviously, but in and of themselves, there are there are many that are archipelagos where you know, most of the jurisdiction is actually the Pacific Ocean rather than land. So how do you deal with that as well? Microgrids, battery storage. I think the the holy grail for everybody, right, is large scale battery storage, so that one could create baseload renewables because that's really hard. That's what's really hard at the moment is how do you how where do you get your baseload from? And particularly again, you know, if you look at the weather patterns in this region, you know, we have monsoon seasons, wet seasons, rainy seasons. I'm you know sitting in rainy season right now. And you know, how do you cater for that if you're shifting you know, towards a greater percentage of renewables in the mix? You have to have you know, that backup for baseload, for spikes, for all of those day-to-day needs. Sometimes it's rainy seasons and monsoon seasons at the same time. <laughs> it, in, indeed. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, but, Depending but, what, the, what the world feels like on that particular year. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> but, but Alan, Cathy's right. I mean, I, in, in terms of battery storage and, and, and dealing with that intermittency issue with, with renewable energy and, and, and battery storage is, is obviously going to be a, a key component in, in addressing that uh, intermittency issue with, with renewables. And and you know, same you know, to going back to LNG, the, the conversation a moment ago, but you know, things like carbon capture technology and, and that becoming a feature of LNG, where you have green LNG, it's 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 a journey. It's all part of the energy transition. I would just add to hearing Kathy talking about you know some of the Pacific Island nations. You know, obviously the way they're situated as as islands, often remote, you know, archipelagos. That's not just even in the Pacific Islands that you see some of these sort of issues. Take one of the most significant economies. In, in Southeast Asia, Indonesia, of course, that is a massive archipelago. And whilst there may be more scale in Indonesia and, and some of the, sort of the population centres are on very significant large islands, electrifying the entire country, though, is a, is a, is a tremendous you know, challenge. And some of the solutions you would see in sort of renewables elsewhere in the world, like in, in, in Europe or, or, or the US, which may sort of have a range of measures, like, for example, greater interconnectivity between different countries and jurisdictions, you know, to take advantage of where the sun's shining, where the wind's blowing. All of these sort of solutions can be a lot harder in Asia, where you have quite sort of far-reaching, you know, difficult terrain to cover, often where some, as Cathy said, a lot of the jurisdiction is across water. <laughs> so just to how you sort of roll out sensible, economic, sustainable, you know, renewable solutions in Asia, it really has to be much more bespoke and take into account local conditions. James Orm, if you look at risks, and let's look at extreme weather, for example, or changes in technology and how that impacts the energy grids as they're building out, not just in island nations, even in larger nations, either in Southeast Asia or North Asia. And you're, if you put yourself in the, in the shoes of an investor or a lender, are there are certain things now where you can't find insurance that you maybe used to be able to find? Are there certain changes in covenant packages or leverage between debt and equity that are uh, taking into account some of the uncertainty around these types of risks? I think in, in terms of the way financiers are starting to think of these projects, I mean, it really is a feature of where the, the project is. I mean, it's picking up on themes from James and Cathy earlier on. And I, I think when I, when I look at how people tend to finance these projects, the, the strength of the country or the utility off-taker, that's obviously a key feature of, of any financing and will impact financial terms. Things like regulatory support, 
and, and things like tariff and, and, and currency issues. And, and those types of risks all feed into the type of financing package that investors are willing to put together for these types of projects. Alan, I think you make really good point there because as we talk about sort of the the, the switch in funding sources, you know, turning off the tap to, to fossil fuel IPP projects, it happens in different ways. It's not just the source of loans to get these projects funded from the beginning. You, know, you mentioned insurance. We're seeing on some major qualified IPPs in the region, the ability to roll over customary insurance policies is getting more and more difficult. That's obviously a very uh, real and significant concern for lenders and sponsors in, in those projects. Just getting a, a new letter of credit to be posted for you know, a trade LC for a particular project, that can be a challenge in itself. So the change in the shifting policies, the change in approach of you know, global financial institutions and regulators is really you know, you know, causing a lot of change, a lot of disruption, and I think a very positive way in terms of the renewable story. I, I agree. I mean, it, it's really exciting because there's, there's some low interest rate environments as well and, and lots of the introduction of new players in the space, you know, whether it's you know, bonds financing renewable energy projects or some of the infrastructure funds or private equity players. They're, they're now competing and, and being a force in, in this space too, together with the more traditional commercial bank and, and ECNA agency lenders. Well, let's look at agency lenders for a moment. Kathy, you work on the non-sovereign side of ADB. In around the world, when we look at multilateral agencies, especially regional development banks, there's a difference I think most people aren't really aware of in how money can be used to facilitate appropriate developments. So on the one hand, there's loans to non-sovereign borrowers or guarantees or other facilities to non-sovereign borrowers to really spur maybe more private co-investment or co-lending. The other way to do it, of course, is sovereign funding, where the development bank gives money to sovereigns, and then they figure out a way to you know, use that to facilitate public or public and private investment in various sectors, not just energy, but you know, across mobility and, uh, and other things. On the non-sovereign side, is that as effective? Is it more effective in some contexts than sovereign lending would be? So, I mean, Alan, one point that you missed there is actually the role that organizations such as ADB you have to play in underlying policy development. And you're right, there is very clearly a role for MDBs to play in sovereign lending to facilitate, you know, what I would call, you know, the upstream part of the process, you know, before the private sector, you know, gets a look-see. But that starts actually with, you know, policy development to create enabling environment for effective solutions, you know, to be brought forward. In India, that comes before sovereign lending, even. If you look around, you know, obviously, you know, ADB, we do you know, policy reform work, but it's not just us, right? The World Bank is very active in our region as well, looking at the underlying policy environment and enabling environment to permit effective solutions to be brought forward, be that by sovereign lending or by private sector lending. And I think that that is obviously critical as well, because you know, without the appropriate enabling environment, private sector lending in particular will take far longer to you know, come to a jurisdiction. So then, James Murray, if you look at it from the private sector side, 
when do they find the regional development banks or other multilateral agencies and ECAs to be most effective? And when do they find them to be competitors crowding out opportunities to, to deploy capital? The way I look at the world, it's very much in the first sort of category of question that you just raised there, meaning I think the role of the agencies, the multilateral development banks, ECAs, other commercial banks, is really, really critical catalyst for so much power energy development we see in the region. The reality is there's a scarcity of, of capital. I don't see much crowding out, frankly. I think that when we look at particular sectors or countries, and the role that, that agencies can play in it. There's some really you know, important examples of, of ways in which they can make a very significant difference. Take geothermal power as, as an example. I think you know, this is a really, not as talked about as much as perhaps wind and solar, but a really interesting part of the renewables story. And if you, if you go into a country like you know, Indonesia, which has among the best geothermal resources in the world, agencies like Asian Development Bank have played a really critical role in developing some of those projects. You know, one project we worked on, you know, ADB was able to provide financing to cover some early stage exploration costs on you know, non-recourse terms. That is a, a really meaningful contribution to, to getting those projects developed. So I think having the the sort of the depth of resources, the the policy standing in the background, you know, the policy direction that the agencies have can be a really helpful way of, of driving forward change and, and investment in the in the renewable space in Asia. James Orm, if you look at sovereign risk and you look at the the large number of utilities off-takers, for example, for power projects, which are state-owned and state-controlled, at what point are lenders looking at the off-take credit risk independently of the macroeconomics of a country or its its policy regime? Yeah, good question. I, I'm not sure, I'm interested if others have different views, but whether that the two are really ever divorced because I, I think the credit rating of a, of a utility off-taker I think is naturally capped at the country's credit rating at a, at a minimum. So you're never going to have a utility off-taker better, you know, rated stronger or better than a, than a country. So I think it can only go down. <laughs> and then let me factor in the, the, the vast array of local jurisdictions in, in the region and everybody having different currencies, for example. But the financiers that James and Cathy talking about wanting to fund in, in US dollars creates sort of currency mismatch issues for, for some of these off-takers to have to deal with. So it's a- Is there a tension between public policy that wants to encourage electrification and encourage investment and therefore has to attract global capital to develop the power sector and affordability of that power and a desire to make energy use more efficient. We certainly do see in various jurisdictions around our region, we see subsidies in that. And, you know, that's for a whole host of reasons, right? It's to, and, and it's essentially to, make, you know, end up with competitive tariffs to attract quality developers to that jurisdiction to, you know, help build out that country's infrastructure. I mean, Alan, in, in your original question, I think you had a very interesting point in there about demand per capita for electricity consumption. And in pure climate terms, one should be looking at reducing demand on a per capita basis. I think that what that objective 
has an underlying assumption embedded within it that there is already, quote unquote, you know, proper quality power infrastructure and supply within a particular jurisdiction. And so I think that there are some qualitative assumptions built into that approach. I would say that there really is a a very significant difference between sort of economic political theory about sort of perhaps how you get efficient outcomes as may be seen in other parts of the world or applied in other parts of the world. The reality is there's just huge power shortages in Asia. In, in certain parts, the electrification rates are still severely behind where they need to be in some countries. So it's a, it's a critical, often a matter of national security, uh, great urgency to, to get more generation capacity in place. And when you're looking at the capital cost of a lot of this generation capacity, it's, you know, it's typically a major component is in US dollars or hard international currency. And for developing countries with relatively weak FX regimes, there is often no choice but to, to heavily mm. subsidize the, the, the power. You know, without long-term PPAs, with hard currency indexing, you know, currency protections for investors, it's just the, the required investment is simply not going to happen. Well, I, I want to stay on that because that's a really important point. So, James, today, when you look at debt and equity investors in a cross-border power financing in the region, how concerned are they with future currency risks, whether that's currency volatility or currency availability or convertibility? I, I use two countries to maybe illustrate answer with that. Take Indonesia, for example, with, with PLN. Um, Indonesia's passed a currency law a couple of years ago requiring that transactions, including in the power space, be be settled, financial obligations be settled in rupiah unless an exemption can be applied. And the result of that means that tariff will need to be settled in rupiah, albeit indexed to dollars. And, and, and I think investors are moving to start to accept that. I think the, the counter data point would be somewhere like Vietnam. For example, where yeah, the recent PPP law has been passed, and and the government is trying to move away from issuing government guarantees of, of Vietnamese dong, and I think there is perhaps a little less comfort there with with the Vietnamese transactions around the government's ability to both convert dong and have sufficient amounts of dollars given the size of the the transaction. So it's I think it's it's a country point, but I mean, James, I don't know if you've got other thoughts. No, I I think. The, the comparison you just drew then, James, between you know, what are two very important markets in the region, um, I think also underscores how this is an evolving thing. It changes. You know, in Indonesia, if you go right back to Asia financial crises, crisis of the late 90s, there was some really significant damage caused to, to investor concerns when just sort of off the back of you know, extreme foreign exchange movement and and the resulting impact on on investors' returns. And so I think for the longest time, we saw in that market a, a real focus, not just on US dollar indexing, but insisting on utility, you know, PLN, paying in US dollars, covering convertibility risk, and also this being backstopped by government guarantees. Now, as time goes on, and you know, I think Indonesia has been quite successful in this regard, there haven't really been sort of the kind of macro horror story events that we perhaps saw in the late 90s. And there's been a growing kind of investor confidence. The country has an investment grade rating now. And so we see this sort of now creep towards sort of a, a more sort of accommodating investment platform. Vietnam has taken a slightly different approach on that. And 
whether that will be you know, successful for them in attracting the really significant foreign investment dollars that they need to attract. I think that's actually still, you know, it's still something that, that, that's evolving. The, you know, sovereign guarantees are an interesting thing too, because quite often the advice on sovereign guarantees for investors who rely on them is don't look to it as a credit instrument. Don't look to it as a source of liquidity. Instead, look at it as something which gives the government skin in the game to ensure that contracts that are being guaranteed will in fact be performed. So it lessens the risk of breach or lessens the risk of non-performance rather than providing a credit backstop. And it's been very effective for that. You know, some of the geothermal projects originally done in the Philippines in the 90s had sovereign guarantees that then were narrowed for subsequent uh, power projects to just cover certain identifiable risks, currency risks in particular, and then eventually could just drop away completely. India, we saw the central government giving counter guarantees for the state government guarantees of the state electricity board's uh, obligations under power purchase agreements. And that, of course, changed over time, too, as domestic credit took up a lot of the slack. Kathy, when you look at the role of either sovereign guarantees or guarantees from multilaterals, how do you how do you see them being most effectively used and, and do people rely on them for the right reasons? Well, I mean, I completely agree with that comment, Alan, about skin in the game, right? The, the value of skin in the game. I think that that is key for organizations like ADB. You know, ADB has you know, guarantee products that puts us on risk. And whether one looks at the very specific risk that we may be covering or, you know, that a sovereign guarantee may be covering, I, I think that's too narrow. It is the skin in the game point that I think is critical in any guarantee offered by a multilateral, a sovereign, a sub-sovereign. It brings people to the party in that sense. It'll be interesting to see sort of how that develops moving forward. The markets in our region mature still further. Let's see what happens. But yeah, very much skin in the, it's a skin in the game play from an investor perspective. Yeah, I think that that actually ties in quite well to one of Alan's earlier questions when we were talking about the role of you know of agencies in, in the region. You know, you asked Alan sort of if you're looking at, at sources of capital and, and who to involve in a deal. You know, do you go to agencies uh, and, and seek their involvement? And I think when we're sort of working with with sponsor entities and you know and, and other stakeholders in projects, this is a point we will often make, which is you know. It, it, if you're worried about political risk and, and managing you know, sovereign you know, default risk, et cetera, sure, you might have a you might be lucky enough to get a sovereign guarantee, but think about other mitigants. You know, if you can bring in a multilateral development institution like ADB, similarly, you know, with ECAs where the particular country they have has a big, say, trading relationship with the country, what you really buy there is potentially very significant, call it soft political risk. When a, a country, maybe it's the utility is sort of facing default because of perhaps it's foreign exchange movement or some other adverse event, which projects are they going to hang out to dry? If you've got a sort of a big, powerful agency in the deal, you can bet that that's going to at least have a second thought before they, they choose that project as the one to default on. So sort of that power that the, those institutions have, the seat at the table that they command, I think that's actually really one of the reasons why uh, many participants in the region look to, to involve them. Yeah, James, we see that all the time with sponsor clients, right? When you're when they're thinking of doing a bond takeout or other types of investment, and you you look to refinance out maybe the agency or the ECA uh, greenfield financing that was put in place. I mean, there's there's pros of 
doing new types of financing, but one of the cons, obviously, with taking out a, a, an agency like an ADB or a, an ECA is, you know, is that G2G relationship, which, which can be so important for, for some of these Asian countries. I want to look at another issue that comes up, and it, it relates to utility or off-taker credit, and it relates to the way that grids evolve in response to changing technology and technological preferences. And I want to frame it this way. If you really wanted to, while you're increasing electrification, while you're increasing economic growth and electricity demand, and you really would like to do, reduce the growth in greenhouse gas emissions, it's not enough just to look at the changes in installed capacity. You have to actually look at the kilowatt hours that are being produced. So we find issues, for example, India has done a wonderful job. He's doing a, a, today a wonderful job in encouraging development in new renewables, solar in particular. And unfortunately, because of the heavy thumb of coal in the existing grid design and some of the economic contracts as well with Coal India, there are times when coal is being used to produce, even though increased solar might be available during the day, it's the marginal lower cost source because there's no fuel cost for it. But because of the way congestion is occurring on the grid or because of the economics of take or pay coal contracts, uh, the solar is not dispatched. So we're finding increases in renewable capacity, but not increases in renewable generation as a share of total generation. That's just one example. Other countries have it. If you imagine a case where new renewables are not being used or where grids change and there's stranded assets that need to somehow be paid for, whether it's old coal plants or, or something newer, which becomes obsolete within its useful life, how are the countries in the region and their, and their utilities able to bridge that? Well, Alan, maybe if I could make one point, which is that when we talk about Asia and the power markets out here, uh, generally speaking, we're, we're not talking about wholesale, efficient, flexible wholesale energy markets. We're still largely talking about PPA-driven markets, where really, frankly, the only basis in many countries to get a, a new IPP financed is off the back of a long-term PPA with, with a national utility and possibly a government guarantee. And what you get in those PPAs typically is availability payment protection. So I think for many of the investments we're looking at, the sort of the dispatch equation and where you sit on, you know, on the marginal cost curve and who's going to be dispatched, that's more a problem for the utility, not, not the project or the investors in the project. Right. It's a utility um, issue. It's a, it's a grid management issue and it's a policy issue, but it's not an economic issue for the investors because the availability payment is sufficient for them to be able to size their debt and still you know, obtain equity on favorable, on favorable terms. That, that's right. And, and I think the other thing I would just mention is you're also looking at a lot of markets in this region, which generally speaking, have don't have sort of large surplus of capacity. <laughs> and so in many cases, uh, most power or most available generation capacity is being regularly dispatched. So that would sort of, I think, be another perhaps distinguishing feature from what you might see in some of the more developed wholesale energy markets elsewhere in the world. Kathy, I want to switch back to you for a minute, if I could, because one of the things we saw in telephony, not in energy, but in island nations like the Philippines, where they wanted to make the jump to having more of the country connected, and later we'll see this also with broadband connections, I'm sure, as countries' economies develop further, because they're an island nation, stringing wires everywhere was really prohibitive. And that's why they missed out on a lot of the expansion in communications technologies that other countries were deploying for decades. 
And with wireless local loop and then later with real mobile cellular telephony, they were able to leapfrog and rapidly deploy. And they didn't have the problem of legacy communications networks that some other countries were saddled with. In power, we're starting to see something similar because you mentioned microgrids before. Distributed generation, solar, solar plus storage when the prices come down, really do offer opportunities to boost electrification of areas where that was not previously really feasible without the legacy costs of maintaining an unpower grid. Uh, are there lots of opportunities there, do you think, to really meet twin goals, expanded access, and more reliable sources? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting comparison, Alan, because that's not just true in Asia. Of course, we, we saw that in Africa very strongly with telephony, right? Skipped the whole fixed landline thing, went straight to mobiles and saw mobile phones. And we see it here. I see it where I live. Mobile phones being used for everything, right? Very mobile phone based approach to daily life. I mean, I think that what that illustrates is that from where we sit today, in honesty, who knows what the next solutions are that will be coming around the corner. The technology develops at exponential rates now, certainly compared to when you and I started in this game, right? Who'd have thought that I'd be able to do my banking from a tiny little thing held in my hand? Who'd have thought there'd be things called microgrids with battery storage to produce power? I'd have never have dreamt of that. So. We don't know, sitting here today, what future technology solutions may be out there. But I agree with you, there will be, almost inevitably, I think, future technology solutions uh, that can be deployed efficiently in jurisdictions in particular where creating a, an effective, a stable, what one would recognize as a national grid may otherwise be extremely challenging, if not impossible. So I think that's a question of, you know, watch his space, to be honest. Just hearing you, Kathy, talk about how times have changed, it kind of frightens me to think about it. But between the four of us, you know, we've worked together on projects, you know, around the world. Most of our careers, we've probably had more than 100 years elective experience. Oh, stop. stop. <laughs> we do. What, what, yes. We, we may not be as old as the bleeding heart, but we certainly have some. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't allocate the 100 years. <laughs> yeah, it says the young one, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid I have all of you beat. <laughs> uh, well, should we leave it there? It's been a really, really interesting discussion. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for arranging it. Good. Well, thanks very much for taking the time today. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.